Welcome back to another edition of Bloody Angola Podcast, 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. And I'm Jim Chapman. I'm Woody Overton. First of all, Woody Overton, it's season three. Yes, love, right? So (laughs) I can't believe that. Thank you, everyone, for liking us and sharing us and helping us grow. It's been amazing. Uh, Chase team members and now all our higher levels of, of patreon warden warden and cert team and yeah yeah the thank you so much we appreciate you but yeah season three it's amazing yeah and we sold out two live shows now uh uh, it's just y'all's response has been phenomenal we appreciate you you're about to start getting bloody angola three days a week and as is our tradition woody everton we kind of always start with a classic story from angola right and this is a classic story <laughs> yeah, uh, that, for every not only about the person it's about but we are going to bring it to you from a what should be a story in its own yes the angola light the start of the angola light which for those of you that are not familiar that's a magazine that is released by the prison uh, for inmates to read, but not only inmates, I had a subscription to it back in like 1992 or 93. And they yep. used to mail it to my house. And, uh, it, All we're it, doing is telling people how old we are. Uh, that was Pony sure. Express yeah, back then. Yeah, when yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely snail mail. But the, um, it, I'll, it always fascinated the shit out of me. Like the criminal mind does, but the, and this is after I worked in the prison system too, but the, um, it's a, phenomenal award-winning magazine it really is and the guy who started that magazine uh is who we're going to really be talking about today the interesting uh deal with this gentleman is that he was the original editor and the guy who started the end goal light but not only did he do that he also in addition kept probably one of the best diaries of angola as a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and say the best diary of Angola you would ever come across. And he had a nickname. I'm going to tell you about that nickname first. They called him Old Wooden Ears. Wooden Ears. 
And the reason they called this gentleman that is he was beat by a correctional officer at some point during his early years in Angola and actually went deaf in one ear. So he was known by the prisoners as old wooden ears. So we're going to tell you about the diaries of William Sadler, and we're going to name this episode Old Wooden Wooden Ears. So the interesting thing. With this episode is that we're going to actually read you the the diary because we can't do this justice without actually reading you the entry. So we're just going to take these back and forth. Trust me, this is interesting, y'all. This is the real diary. So I'm gonna- yeah, think about it. They, you don't have a whole lot to do in prison. At least this guy was keeping himself busy by keeping a diary. Um, and didn't hold back. Right. And, and but. He told the truth according to him. Mm-hmm. That's right. So we're going to start with January 1st, 1936. This was New Year's Day on Angola, and it was celebrated by all hands out in the field, with the exception of Camp E, most of whom are assigned to the refinery. Sugarcane cutting going on full blast with no Sundays or holidays off until grinding ends, which will be about the middle of the month. Red Hats. Out in the cane shed. Red Hats. So if you listen to our Red Hats episode, uh, you'll find out a little bit more about them. But he's already mentioned in the Red Hats. Yep. And there you go. So on January 3rd, 1936, he writes, There was hell on the Gola this day. The refiners have been making 100% white sugar and shipping it to the brokers in Chicago under the Pelican Refinery, Baton Rouge. Label so consumers wouldn't get onto the fact that it was made by convict labor. The last month, some of the dudes loading freight cars at Camp E siphoned off sugar out of several sacks and filled holes with striped convict clothes. When the sacks hit Chicago and the retail market and a howl went up, which was heard way down here, The result, about 16 men caught the bat, anywhere from 30 to 45 lashes each. But those who were beaten weren't the guilty ones, strange to say. It seems their clothing had been stolen and shoved into the sacks, and since the dudes bore their laundry numbers, it made them automatically guilty. The actual perpetrators of the switch got off scot-free, which is often the case on this Angola. How about that? Right. And uh, y'all go back and listen to some of our episodes. The bat was basically a big leather strap. That's what they're referring to. Now, that's pretty smart. Let me tell you this real quick. The uh, When I was in basic training in the Army, they had a guy across on the cot across from me that snored every night. I mean, just like, and I wasn't getting any sleep anyway, right? But I'm a light sleeper. So... The uh, before the lights went out, I one he had lined his shoes underneath the bunk. I stole one of his boots, and when the lights went out and he started snoring, I reared back and I threw that boot and I hit him in his head as hard as I could. And he jumped up and he was like, "You motherfuckers, I'm gonna get you." He said, "I got your boot. When I turn on the lights in the morning, I'm gonna find out who it is." Well, guess what? It was his. Right? These prisoners were smart like that. They stole somebody else's clothes and other inmates' clothes and numbers and plugged the holes. They they were hoping to get the uprising, which they got. But unfortunately, 
of the victims that they stole from, well, they got the bat. They got the bat. 30 to 45 lashings, y'all. So you're starting to see kind of the brutality with Angola and why they called it bloody Angola. Uh, And another thing that I found interesting about that entry was the fact that they would switch the labels. And the reason they would do that, back in the 30s, people wasn't down with convict labor like that. Still do it. When when I worked at DCI, they had the crawfish plant, and they brought in – they ran it 24 hours a day. They brought in two 18-wheeler loads of crawfish a day, and they boiled them. And then the inmates had to peel 16 pounds of tail meat, and they got weighed at the end of their 12-hour shift. If they didn't peel the 16 pounds, they went to the hole. But guess what? They packaged it under Louisiana Crawfish Company and sold it, and that's the shit you buy in the grocery store when you buy Louisiana crawfish. It used to be when you buy Louisiana crawfish tails. There you go. So next time you buy them. No, when it crawfish that. season, they made them cut onions, and they sold the cut of the cut up onions like the Holy Trinity. Yeah. So, but the damn near sure didn't say it was done by prisoners. That's right. So uh, we continue on, and you're seeing that brutality take place. January 5th, 1936, narrowly missed the bat myself this day. Captain J.H. Rowe, that's a good Cajun name, of right. Camp A missed credit for a carload of cane, which had been sent to the mill. There's always been more confusion out in the yard when the cane cars are brought in by railroad crews at night. In this case, the weight ticket evidently became lost, not by fault, but close shave nevertheless. Wow. Close shave. I'm yeah. And he narrowly missed that bat. What do you shit, I can't imagine there, were, there was a lot of lights and shit on the, on the trains they were rolling. Now, think about it. Sure, cane, y'all, when, that's what he's talking about. Look. There's a certain time you got to cut it and get it out and get it to the mill to get it pressed. So they, I bet you they were working. Uh, I know they were working sun up, sun down. Oh yeah, and yeah. and sugar cane was a huge commodity. It still in those is, and right. still is. Yes. Right All right, y'all. So the next one, his his journal entry is on January 9th, nineteen thirty six, and he says it was cold and pouring down rain today. No slickers, no boots, no gloves. All camps at work in the fields. Negro women cutting cane from on headland. White men from Camp G working toward them. John Henry on the turn row. Dinner served out in the open. Rain so hard, the whippoorwill peas bounce off your plate faster than you can spoon them down. Menu today, chicken, chopped grits, stovepipe gravy, Soybean bread and coffee made from horse beans for breakfast. I'm hungry already. What? <laughs> I need my Out in the rain, Wait, y'all. I'm about hey, it's raining so hard. You're trying to eat your shit before it gets any soggy. But it's rain. The fat drops are hitting your plate so hard that your peas are bouncing off the plate. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and that's, you, hey, they didn't give a shit. They were they, they were getting that sugar cut. That's right. So. 14th of January, 1936, the whistle blew today for the end of the 1935-36 grinding season. Tonnage figures show one of the biggest years in Angola history, but no sugar on the table. Uh-huh. <laughs> they found over nine tons, which had been hidden in various places around the refinery for use during the coming year by the refinery crew. Right. The hideouts were tipped off by the black cat, who, as a convict, had helped plant it. But two weeks ago, he was paroled to the state for work in the refinery. So his first duty was to put the finger on the hidden sugar. Wow. 
gave it up. Gave it up. You know that went on, man. That, uh, I mean, sugar's a commodity, right? Even the people, the free people that worked in the mill, but I guarantee the, the inmates kept some too to make that homemade brew. All right, y'all, so we're going to January 20th, 1936. Again, from Woodenear's Diary. He says, Camps all at work in the field, hoeing stubbles. Rainy and wet today. Wet clothes worn into the camp dormitories, which are heated only by a wood-burning stove made out of a discarded 50-gallon oil drum. Clothes are wet when you put them on next morning. This kind of work cut in the weather bring a siege of pneumonia in the free world. But the old saying on the goal is, you can't kill a convict that easy. You can't. <laughs> right? Hey, imagine working. So well, first of all, when we talk about the stubble, after you cut the sugar cane, you got you got all the, basically the stumps of the roots, and they had to clear that so they could plant the next year's crop. Amazing. And wet-ass clothes. I guess they slept naked. Yeah. And I wonder if he got the, the, I guess the big bull in the door and got to put his clothes close to the wood. Yeah. Shot collar. Yeah. The shot collar. Fe- right. February 1st, 1936. Those alert characters at Camp E have rigged up a new wrinkle to beat the daily shakedown at the gate. Uh oh. Where every bit of garden produce was confiscated, it often became a problem to smuggle a contraband article into the yard and into the dining room. So the dudes train one of the various mongrel dogs to fetch and carry. Now the garlic and even pokes of sugar outside the fence. The pooch scrambles underneath the wire and the guards noses and brings it into the plant. Uh, 24 <laughs> hours a day, seven days a week. I'm going to figure out how to get over on it, right? But on my birthday in 1936, on February, February 5th, yeah. 1936, oh, Wooden Ears writes, it's cold and raw this morning. Camp G is working over on Monkey Island, getting in the spinach and radish crops off the overflow land before the rise of Mississippi gets them. It is said the long line must wade the bayou, waist deep, going to and coming from the camp, then working the water over a foot deep to harvest a crop. And this in winter. Crazy. It's crazy. Y'all would note Monkey Island is located where Louisiana and Mississippi meet at the rear of the prison and was a notoriously miserable place to work. An air border in the Mississippi River, it remained flooded and marshy most of the year and was infested with mosquitoes and snakes. Yeah, and that's a big problem with Angola that we're going to talk about in the future is the flooding. I mean, they've had to evacuate prisoners from Angola many times because the Mississippi River water was up. So... Uh, we're going to move on to February 8th, 1936. Oscar Loki, the long line water boy, finished up this eight years day for day yesterday. A Yankee lad, he came out on Angola when he was 18. He made and sold out in the field. And from his profits, over the eight years, saved a total of $74. Which, hey, that's probably a lot of money to, to an inmate. His best friend, Frenchy LeBlanc, was the last to tell him goodbye yesterday at the receiving center where he was dressed out. Oscar showed officials his roll of hard-earned money, flipped off the rubber band under which was a dollar bill, and found the rest of the roll was merely coffee coupons. Uh. 
So basically, this this officer took all the money. <laughs> no one knows whether LeBlanc stole the money, but Loki said LeBlanc was the only one who knew where he kept it hidden. So, uh, correction, LeBlanc, his friend, stole the oh, money, put yeah. coffee coupons in there with a dollar on he the top of it. He thought he was rolling out with his $74. And <laughs> got it. But he's got plenty of yeah. free coffee, apparently. It's crazy. On February 9th, 1936, Bill Brazil, a guard at the refinery, died today. He had only a few months to go to throw a life sentence. A piece of metal, lead, the size of a fist had fallen from one of the beams and struck Brazil square on the top of his head. Two <laughs> characters who were working painting the steel structure three stories above Brazil were questioned to no avail. It is not clear how the lead, which had no business in the refinery anyway, happened to fall on Brazil like a bomb. Y'all, and, and for a note, Angola death records listed no one named Brazil dying in the 1930s. But a William B. Brazil, inmate number 20030, is listed as dying at Camp E, where the sugar refinery was located on April 20th, 1935. His cause of death was listed as broken neck, caused by a fall from beam in the top of the refinery. Records have also shown that suspicious deaths were often listed as accidents, and he is buried, buried on at the original Point Lookout Road where they bury inmates. That's crazy. Yeah, it, but, it, you know what? it really is. The, uh, you know, the, you don't want to say it's an inmate on inmate murder. Yeah, the pen is mightier than the sore, right? That's Cover right. Up, whatever. And you'll know. But and he was there, I believe. Oh, Wooden Ears saw the lead. You know, y'all. Old Wooden Ears tells the truth. Though. That's he, right. This is his personal diary. He didn't know that right. anyone was ever going to exactly. see this. He didn't know y'all were going to be listening to it. <laughs> Guaranteed, he didn't know that. What he ever did. Almost 100 years later. Yeah. So find that interesting, too, because we've talked about in old episodes how records back in those right. days were, right. were altered or not kept. Yeah, I even wonder, you mentioned one uh, broken backs and shit or broken, mm-hmm. you know, broken. I'm like, how oh, you break your back? You're not jumping out of a window. Yeah. Get that bat. That's right. <laughs> February 12th, 1936. Sweet potato stew for dinner mm-hmm. and supper these days. Uh-huh. Usually there's a piece of meat somewhere in the pan, but you have to be mighty quick with your fingers to find it. Thank goodness they have stopped making bread with soybean flour, but they are still serving boiled soybeans on the table. Now, meals were served to prisoners in those days with typically the cheapest ingredients you could possibly find in order to save money when the food items of any real quality appeared. It was often skimmed or outright stolen from prisoners or employees looking to make a little money. Yeah, yeah. And I, again, the soybean shit is is shit they grew. Yeah. So we're going to February 15, 1936. Vernon Hancock is a saddler, but wiser man at Camp E today. Vernon, who works in the ice house, was a big shot gambler. He owned all the poker tables. So two <laughs> Weisenheimers set sent out and brought two decks of reader cards, marked, of course. They finagled Vernon into buying into the decks at a bargain price. Seals unbroken, then proceeded to sit into Vernon's game. This all began three weeks ago. Today, Vernon is broke, and the pair has all his dough. But two friends who tipped the switch off to Vernon after it happened, he replied, Why, them cards wasn't marked. 
I broke the seals on the new decks myself. Barely a fool in his money. <laughs> I mean, they're running a casino in right? Angola. Well, uh, Gamble is a huge thing in prison. But it says, no, the above are, um, entries along with the entry in the opposite column are just more glaring examples of how good fortune, whether in saving for the future or perceived luck at the gambling table, often created problems for everyone involved. No doubt about it. And old Wooden Ears going to tell the truth. Like we said. He got no reason to lie. No He's writing for himself, not anybody else. That's right. Now, February 18th, 1936. Will these jailhouse swindles never cease? Mitchell LaFleur. If you notice, a lot of these names are Very Cajun names, y'all. No read and write cell room guard at Camp E also has been taken to the cleaners, financially speaking. Seems a dude had a catalog with some pictures he induced mitchell to pick out a dame who claimed to have fifty thousand dollars and was looking for her husband the dude wrote in the letter for mitchell of course and when the replies came the dude read them to the guard the love interests were hot finally the dame said she would come see mitchell and marry him only her fifty thousand dollars was tied up in a legal snarl and as soon as they were married she would sign over half to him. But right now, she said, would Mitchell send her $100 for the train fare? <laughs> this is crazy. He did. <laughs> now, this is a guard, y'all. That is, he gave it to the dude to send for him, and that's the last he's heard or ever will hear. So even back in 1936, you had these these. Uh, these hustlers, man, right. and they were send me a hundred dollars. Yeah, you know, nowadays it's through email. Back right. then or, it was through regular mail. The, the calls from Jamaica, right? Saying, "Oh, you've won, you won a million dollars. Yes, send us, send us ten thousand dollars for legal fees." <laughs> Went it, on in nineteen thirty-six. Only, only takes one out of a hundred, and if you do it, if you're successful, one out of a hundred, then you're successful. Yeah. All right. On February twenty-first, nineteen thirty-six, Woodnears writes, "Getting so they put the bat." in action three times a day nowadays Uh-oh. during breakfast after dinner and after supper former calls out the unlucky ones and tells the captain they are lazy or insubordinate and the poor devils usually catch from 20 to 30 lashes apiece. one yesterday had his third beating in 10 days how long oh lord uh, i mean he's just riding with third saying. beating in 10 days and, and it probably the probably the correctional officers were like to the to the inmates who were pushing the lines that what they called them inmate guards were like, hey, we're gonna make an example out of somebody, right? And yeah. Now they're doing it three times a day. It helps keep the other people in line. I wonder if it was the same guard that lost that hundred dollars. Would he have taken it out on He's people? Got the red February twenty sixth, nineteen thirty six. Little Doc Goodman at Campy was strung up naked by his wrist to a beam in the ceilings in the camp lobby today and whipped with at least fifty lashes. Those who had listened said they lost count. Doc has been accused of laziness and insubordination many times in the past. His body is a mass of scar tissue from burns suffered outside, so he seems to be immune to ordinary punishment. So the idea of stringing him up naked was devised. He's supposed to hang there 72 hours without food or water. Wow. That's crazy. 
y'all wrap your mind around that i mean when we tell you bloody angola back in the day wasn't no joke it wasn't no joke now the lengths that the prison or guard would go through to punish people apparently knew no bounds despite the dangers of whipping someone as much as they whipped goodman hanging him by his wrist for 72 hours was infinitely more dangerous such punishments with a body position akin to crucifixion could easily cause suffocation by the pressure exerted on the lungs and the diaphragm by three days of such torture. It should not only that, three days, that's the, the maximum you can go without uh, the water, right? We can never uh, confirm or deny yeah. that that well, existed, yeah, but yeah, old Woodmere says it did. It's all, and again, it, I, you know, it's all, I would say, to control the population. This guy was being, you know, a repeat offender on insubordination, et cetera. Like, mm, we're going to show you but anyway, let's go to February 28, 1936. Woodnears writes, safe burglars, intent on plying their trade, even on Angola. Last night, burrowed through the tag plant wall into the general warehouse and broke into the safe there. <laughs> they say over $1,000 is missing. Or is this as a red herring to cover a cash shortage? How could those guys get out of the cell room building last night to do their burglarizing. That's right? freaking yeah, crazy. Yeah, this, well, he had a good point. He had yeah, a good point. It's probably a guard. Blame it on, on a convict, right? Yeah. And uh, so $1,000. I won't have them burn. They well, tried to say they, they burned. They those dudes that are accused of um, $1,000 and $36. That's like $100,000 now. Okay. So we move on to the next March. First, 1936, heard today Angola was going to have a doctor. Not like the one present joker who comes up from Baton Rouge once a week, but a full-time medical man. Maybe now they will start examining and classifying fresh fish so they won't be dying out in the fields of such things as exposure and exhaustion. Is this progress? So that's a good point that old Wooden Ears brings up, Woody, and that is... Uh, when you're new to Angola, you know, they put you out in the fields and bodies have to acclimate. So these fresh fish, as he calls them, they go out in that field and they're not used to the sun 12, 15 hours a day. Absolutely. Well, well, the episode we did with Kelly Jennings, said, she talked to one guy, it was the first job he ever had in his entire life. His entire life. Yeah. That's crazy. crazy. But, you know, them bringing a doctor in wasn't because they gave a damn about them convicts they just want to keep them alive they yeah they cared about keeping them alive so they can keep them working that's right all right let's go to march 3rd 1936 he writes pursuant to an edict from the pen of the warden there are neither dogs nor cats on on angola today his letter to all captains said dogs and cats are taking the place i want them gotten rid of so there was a general roundup, and many a pet went to the river via a croaker sack. They tipped me off that if Farm Superintendent G.A.G. ever comes in to weigh on my scales, to be sure to tell him from 20 to 30 pounds less than his actual weight. He's very myoptic. And when I wanted to know why, they said, if you don't, he'll beat the hell out of you with his stick. Vanity, you know what? All these are interesting. Ship. This guy was very um, 
articulate for a convict in 1936. April 27th, 1936. The count at Camp E came up one man short last Uh night. Uh Oh, Red. Dewey Dewey Bryan, ice plant worker, was missing. He was found in the cold storage room, dead drunk. Uh The discovery touched off a smelling of breaths of having... (laughs) This is so crazy. The discovery touched off a smelling of breaths of having taken a covet nip of the local joy juice, and everyone was pulled out and whipped. So basically, if they had alcohol on their breath, they pulled them out and whipped them with the bat. Brian was given 85 lashes by being dead drunk. Felt no pain. (laughs) This morning, they had to cut him loose from his mattress where the blood on his back had dried and stuck into it. He is not the first, nor will he be the last. Wow. Crazy. I mean, wow, y'all. Hey, that Pruno is some bad shit, but it ain't worth 80 <laughs> licks. I can uh-uh. tell you that. Stuck to the mattress. Yeah, that's that's got to suck. That's, and your whole back will scab. All right, so on April 28, 1936... He writes, despite a workday, which now begins at 5.15 a.m. and ends at 6.30 at night, the menu remains the same. For breakfast, grits, gravy, and bread. 29th, April 1936, Gerald Red Kramer, who was shot four times by a convict guard in the okra patch near E, got a visit from his mother today. That's special. Aside, Kramer's bed is his coffin because he is expected to die. His mother talked to him across the coffin. And there's a note underneath that says camps where a prisoner died often pulled money to purchase materials for his coffin. Generally, the camp store kicked in also. It's crazy. April 30th, 1936. Pollywog Jones, Uh-oh. who was shot in the arm and leg in the okra patch at the same time as Gerald Kramer, has gone to work. The foreman drove him out of the Red Hat cells this morning with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> he he wasn't going to have to work call. He beat him on. Yeah. Pollywag going to learn his Polly lesson Wag. eventually. Pollywag got the stick. I love this. May 1st, 1936, a buyer of potatoes complained today his tubers were arriving skinned up. He was taken into the field where a long line of Negroes were harvesting potatoes on their hands and knees. The buyer inspected box after box, and the Negro who had been skinning his potatoes was whipped. Several offenders caught the bat, they say. Crazy. Y'all, just, this is life back the then in 36 in, and in gold. Day out. And he goes to May the 2nd, 1936. John Francis Carney died last week in the Camp E Hospital. He had complained for weeks of stomach ulcers, pleaded for milk since the could not digest his regular fare. Dr. Gwynn, the new LSP physician, had this to say about Carney in his report to the warden. I find nothing wrong with this man. He is faking and fully able to do field work. The autopsy showed the cause of Carney's death, stomach ulcers and peritonitis. That's crazy. Uh, and there's a note underneath says, Angola death records listed James Francis Carney's death as August 22nd, 1938, 
The official cause recorded was peptic ulcer, chronic malignant degradation, carcinoma, stomach, etc. LSP records indicate he was buried at the prison. If so, he resides at one of the graves with the illegible markers or perhaps in the communal grave where the remains from the various cemeteries located near defunct camp. Wow. Defunct camps were consolidated. Crazy. May 3rd, 1936, the order's gone out to all foremen in the field that they must carry a fever thermometer. When an inmate gets overheated, the foreman is supposed to take his temperature and give him a blow in the shade. (laughs) But most of these foremen can neither read or write. So how will they take a temperature and read a thermometer? I I mean, that's a good point, old Wadnir. I don't know what a blow in the shade means. Yeah. I'm assuming y'all that it meant <laughs> arrest. Yeah. I, I assume as well, but he had some interesting. That's it for that one. Yeah. May 4th, 1936. He writes, skimmed up potatoes, brought an application of the bat to harvesters at Camp C today. 15 were given from 20 to 25 lashes each. Can't harvest a crop without leather, the general manager says. Hmm. I guess he, he means they, they can't push the line. Without a beating. That's right. May 5th, 1936, the new issue of coffee from the warehouse today is half horse beans, parched and half pea berry. But that's good because it has been all horse beans before. And there's a note underneath that says creative efforts were constantly made to enhance the poor quality of coffee available to the inmates. Any manner of items such as chicory or walnuts would be added to create a more palatable brew, but it rarely worked. Shit. Shit, a coffee's a big thing in prison. All right, going to May 6, 1936. He writes, Sundays will be worked until the potato crop is harvested, according to the order issued to all camps today. Now, that's the Lord's Day. Right, what do you have right, to- the Lord's Day, but that's also work day. They don't want the potatoes riding in the ground. Then on the next day, he writes, on May 7th, 1936, he writes, Milton Good, New Orleans sex fiend, got a dollar watch from the free world thinking to make suction with the foreman. He gave it to the man today so he could tell knocking off time. The man beat him over the head with the watch and chain, breaking the watch because he can't tell time. (laughs) (laughs) So great. You can't make sure it'd be a movie. <laughs> I mean, ruined a perfectly good watch. Now, May 8th, 1936, George Buckley was awarded the line pusher job today for his diligence in keeping the man informed on who was leaving potatoes on his row unpicked. Right. So he's a rat, basically, right, basically. And, and got him a job yeah. based on telling on his got boys. Yeah, so, and then May 9th, he continues, and he says, mosquitoes in the cell room are making the nights a veritable hell at Camp E. No screens on the windows. Oil lamps after 8.30 at night. Shower bath is a pipe six feet long with holes punched in it. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. that's that's just a good look into the, the you know, their everyday life. Should, uh, mosquitoes in, on Angola are more like saber-toothed rock breakers yeah. fuckers down there on the river. All right, on, on May 10th, the next day, 1936, he writes, shipments of potatoes to date total 253 carloads, 
all have gone to buyers in Chicago. Coals are being served on the lines tables at camps. It is said the tomato harvest will start about two weeks earlier this year. So that was obviously a big deal for them. What were, uh, you know, crops and that was their life thing going to Chicago. There's no gangsters in Chicago, right? <laughs> nah. That's, what Al said. That's it. May 11th, 1936. I have been transferred to Camp B for the duration of the shipping season so that my job as a clerk for the packing shed will be handier. At B, uh, at B are about 150 teenagers who all should be either in school or at home with their mothers. Mm. Then he continues on the 12th of May. He says, call Campy today over the phone and asked him for two refrigerator cars to be sent via the prison railroad. Henry Von Schumer, who answered the phone, told me a fresh fish had grabbed the man's hickory stick and broken after the man struck him with it. The poor devil didn't know he had a session with the back coming when he got back to the camp. But it was poetic justice, and I said I'd have given $10 to see the melee. Carried to Camp E this night where Henry, the butcher boy of New Orleans, and I painted signs until 2 or 3 in the morning for Governor-elect Leshy's inaugural ball, which is to be held May 14th in Baton Rouge. Wow, that's just crazy and real. And you can see they Rest used them for all kinds of things. Stick and he like, F you, took a stick from him and broke it. He just thought he was going to get away with it. That was the entertainment for the other inmates. They knew that shit was coming. Oh, yeah. And then them writing signs for the governor. <laughs> yeah, that's not illegal. <laughs> All right, he writes, the next day, May 13, 1936. After three hours sleep, I awoke with the rest of the camp, was taken into custody to the camp kitchen where old Tangle Eye, the captain, was waiting for me. He Tangle. asked if I had ever been whipped yet. When I told him I had him, he told me to remove my clothes for I was about to catch a dose of red heifer. Uh-oh. Wise cracking over the phone the day before. The captain then called in four men to hold my arms and legs, spread eagling me so as I couldn't move. The first blow was liquid fire. It was as though I had been seared with a white heated iron poker. I yelled and begged for mercy because if I hadn't, he would have beaten me until he could no longer wield the bat. Those trying to eat breakfast as this was going on told me later I caught 35 lashes. My back and up and down my thighs are all bloody where the skin has broken. I can't lie down. May God curse me if I ever forget this day, May the 13th. Note, Old Tangle Eye was Captain J.L. Carmichael, one of the more prolific ever applicators of flogging. Holy Story. crap, his first ass with his first bat. Yeah, 35 lashings. And, uh, you know, I one mean, thing. Bro, you, yeah, you get lashed like that. I imagine you shit yourself, you piss yourself if you don't throw up everything from the pain. Can you imagine? Man, they make you strip. They put they have you take it all off. Well, they don't want to rip public prison clothes. Yeah, that's a good point. state property. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, May 14th, 1936. Back at work at the packing shed today, despite my sore back, which keeps me from sleeping, a grapevine kite today tells me that Henry Von Schumer received 25 lashings for telling me the incident of the stick and the man over the phone. Uh. 
So <laughs> they beat him just for talking about right. it. The charge was for broadcasting camp business over the phone. What? Dang, is it? I don't remember seeing that in the rule book. (laughs) (laughs) They're probably not the operators there anymore listening in either, right? Yeah. May 15th, 1936. He writes, old timers at work at the packing shed, after looking at my back, tell me I got only a dusting where whippings are concerned. 35, it is said, is light. God almighty. What is heavy? Right? Right? It's just crazy. Nuts. Next day, May 16th, 1936, he writes, The captain of Camp B told me today he needs a good office man. I said I was the best. He said I'd get better food and private sleeping quarters if I took the job at his camp. But he added a sticker. He said, I want you to go over in the yard and find out what the men are plotting and tell me. (laughs) <laughs> I said, Captain, any man who tells you about someone else will tell someone else about you. I didn't get the job. <laughs> <laughs> He's a boss oh. surprise he didn't get another bat. I'm telling you. Oh, wooden ears. Turning down the job. Down the job. May 17th, 1936. My back and thighs are blue, black, and still swollen. Well-wishers have given salve to keep my clothes from sticking to me. Mm. May the good Lord let me meet the man who beat me somewhere in the free world. Yeah, right. Look, so he's 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 praying for vengeance and on that one. still in the pain. And, and all joking aside, y'all, I mean, beating them so bad that the clothes were sticking yeah, to them. Even days that I mean, your body can never fully heal because it's trying to scab over. Your clothes are sticking to it, so you're having to rip that off, and it makes it fresh <sighs> every day. Jesus. Crazy. May 17, 1936, he writes, Call back to the warehouse. It can't be today to check the LSP cattle inventory. This is a yearly affair. At the slaughter pens where the count was made, the tally came up 245 heads short. The cattle foreman, a free man, explained, the rest of them steers is up in the hills. Can't get them today. <laughs> they say his shorts has been stolen and sold to farmers over the Mississippi line. Hmm. Now, you know this Likely shit story, on, right? Yeah. The, the, I've, I heard stories in the in 1990s about, you know, one calf – Drop went to the state. One calf drop went somewhere else. I'm not saying any names. I'm get killed by it. <laughs> hey, yeah, so I good. bet you 235 head. Yeah, in the Tunica Hills, them fucking cows ain't in, in the Tunica Hills. Nope, they in somebody's belly. Right. May 18th, 1936. Preacher Doc Caraway of Shreveport, a recent arrival has laid his Bible down. Today, in the long line at Camp E, he raised his arms to the skies and discovered his belief in divinity. Said Doc, there can't be a God who would allow a place like Angola to exist. May 19th, 1936. He writes, the potato harvest is over for this year. More than 300 cars have been shipped at an average price of $286 per car. No account has been made of the cost in blood from Angola's 300 slaves, however. I have been transferred back to Camp E to work in the general warehouse this date. There you go. The next day he writes on May 20th. He says, Machinery at the Pelican Cannery here is being readied for the tomato harvest. 
The plant will be under the supervision of Captain J.N.W., who is head man at the women's camp. The canned products will be labeled Pelican Cannery Baton Rouge and will be sold in the open market, it is said. Hmm. That's crazy. So in the note, it says that Captain J.N.W. referred to was Captain J.N. Willis. In March 1940, the cannery was the subject of controversy following complaints about the labeling and pricing of the canned goods processed there. The cannery was later destroyed by fire in October 1940. May 21st, 1936. My back is slowly healing from the beating I received last week. Man, he started. Still going. I'm telling you. And will leave only faint scars, I am told. But the mental scars will never heal. Today... Ray Carroll, Camp E office clerk, told me the record showed only 16 lashes. If Captain Tangalai had gotten his head all over the 16 he put on me, it would have killed him. Mm. So Tangalai is, is, you know, Jack, we're going to have to look up Tangalai. Yeah, I bet the story's on him, yeah. May 26, 1936, the women are to be worked alongside the Camp E long line in the cannery next week, according to informed sources. The LSP policy on tomatoes is to eat what can't be canned and can all you can't eat. Informed sources. I love that, right? (laughs) This is how he's writing a convict in 1936. May the 23rd, 1936, writes, Jack Dorsett and Tom Abbotsford, the former having acted for over a year as physician here and who was responsible for many an ailing man being placed in the fields were brought back from furlough violations. Both have been nabbed while passing bad check checks in your ones. Uh-oh. And each blamed the other. <laughs> they were soundly whipped and later engaged in an old-fashioned bare-knuckle fight. Each <laughs> continued to blame the other for the arrest. It's laughable because each was only too eager to run the water on the other. Where is that honor among these business you hear about? Both also were busted to the field detail. Oh. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. May 24th, 1936, Artie Goldbrick Joiner. <laughs> Man, they got some great nicknames. Mm-hmm. Who slept adjoining me for 11 months and who shared my tobacco and coffee all during that time was... Last week turned out convict guard. Today I inadvertently passed his guard post. He racked down on me with his double barreled flat back and was all fixed to blow my head off. Our friendship, it seems, has now ended. (laughs) I love that one. I mean, he's talking about convict guards. That's what they did to keep the cost down of securing the prison. So think that his old cellmate cell, for his a old year, bunkie uh, for a year, almost. I mean, they gave him shotguns, <laughs> and he almost blew his head off. That's cold blooded of old Goldbrick to do that. Old Goldbrick got didn't have to eat them uh, soggy potatoes or whatever. Right? I'm telling you, uh, May 25th, 1936, the warden put on a new sign at the Peckerwood Hill Graveyard today. What a great name! <laughs> What a great name. It straddles the entranceway and, and is a foot high in letters of old English font. It says, through the sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But since 
the sign facing the roadway, the convicts buried behind it can't read it. Whose sign does it refer to? And it says underneath, note, Peckerwood Hill was a nickname for Point Lookout, the prison cemetery. The first recorded reference to Point Lookout was on 1935 for Jesse Anderson, who was buried on Road 2, Grave 11. His death was caused by a cerebral hemorrhage and syphilis. Oh, shit. We had, hey, we're definitely going to do an episode on, on Point Lookout. I mean, Peckerwood, but I can't believe I they call they, it Peckerwood, Peckerwood Hill. Hill. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure of this, but I'm pretty sure that they, they didn't bury blacks and whites together then. And they, maybe they call them Becker Woods for that, that being a derogatory, derogatory term for um, whites. All right. May 26, 1936. He writes, there were several fallouts in the campy long line out in the field. Heat stroke. Foreman is supposed to let them blow in the shade if they're overheated. The water water boy carries the fever thermometer, but the bulb is broken off the end. It says, note, comments about the lack of attention given to overheated inmates were common. Supervisors seemed to feel that overheating was an excuse for inmates to rest. Despite their excuses, 1936, at least five inmates died of heat-related causes. Wow. Crazy. Broke the monitor. Give him that blow in the shade. Though, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give them blow in the shade. Well, get me a blow in the shade. <laughs> <laughs> May twenty seventh, nineteen thirty six. George Basil Beisenheimer, a lifer, was instructed this morning to sweep off the cannery steps and porch. He did. He also swept everything in the yard and into the porch. When asked who told him to give the yard a sweep, he said, God told me to. They put 30 lashes on him. He was only recently released from an insane asylum and is definitely not right. May 28, 1936. Tomatoes are on the table, stewed in water, no seasoning. Meat ration for Camp E's 375 men is 135 pounds of four-quarter beef per week. Per week. Probably one of those cows from out in the heat. Yeah. <laughs> By the time the cooks and their friends get through with it, the long line gets a chunk about as big as a thumb okay. in the stew once weekly, if they're lucky. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, they, they made guards for having T-bones. All right. May 29, 1936, he writes, They say the D-Ducks are beginning to fly on Angola. Each employee, from captain down to foreman, must kick in from 10 to 25% of his monthly paycheck. It's either that or quit. They all pay off at the Camp E General Warehouse to Nelson Beauregard, the superintendent. The cash goes in the Governor campaign kitty, I'm told. No one knows for sure. and says, no, it was not unusual for politicians to apply suggested pressure on employees and even inmates who were often conscripted as evidenced by Sadler's insurance on 512-36. May 30th, 1936. Today up in Yankee land, it is decoration day and a holiday. But it is just another work day here on the field. By 4.30, we're in for supper and it's 7.15 to bed. And early to rise, sure as hell don't make anyone on the GOLA half healthy, wealthy, or wise. Right. <laughs> on the Gola. 
May 31st, 1936. Today I saw the corpse of five babies in the doctor's office at Camp E General Hospital. They are preserved in bell jars and alcohol. The talk is they were born to women at Camp D. No mm-hmm. one knows for sure. Wow. That's crazy. And, it, and there's a note underneath, rumors persist to this day about children born to women at Camp D. Few records are available, yet according to a 1951 article in the Times, Picayune, a child was born to a newly incarcerated woman in February of that year. Hmm, I bet you some were born after they were incarcerated, the guards having a poke or whoever, right? Yeah. Remember, in the first episode, they it wasn't a crime for the women to be raped in prison, and if they had the baby, now this is 1936, a long time after slavery, but if they had the baby while they were locked up, it became property of the state as a slave. That's right. And so, y'all, we hope you enjoyed that. That's just a little taste of uh, of his diary. They, what they did was they produced this in the Angolite uh, last year, and they had several issues they put out. We just read from a couple of those issues. Right. But I'll tell you what, I enjoyed this I episode. Say, I love the history. I love that insight and this dude is writing this daily almost yeah. daily the shit he, he saw his perspective yeah i can only imagine Angola. years and years of that book i'm a I reader was, i wish he was alive so we could interview him boy i'm t- <laughs> old one in studio yes indeed well and we, we told y'all it would always be different this is another fine example of something that Jim dug up, which I think is fire, and we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, and we thank y'all for uh, for allowing us uh, to have a season three. All right. of our patron members, of course, you may you know they if you can't be a patron member, we totally get it, and right. we hope you enjoy the episodes. If you are a patron member, uh, thank you so very much. We couldn't do it without them. Absolutely, and y'all, please, if you would be so inclined. Go leave us a review on iTunes or wherever. Like and subscribe to Bloody Angola. Check out all our social media. Um, y'all, you want something really cool now that we have? We have our own Bloody Angola wine. Yes. Right? Yes. Right? $25 a bottle. We'll sign it for you and send it to you. Tell about it. That's right. So uh, we have a white wine, a red wine, and we have a, a rose, I guess is what they call it, uh, wine. And uh, if you go, if you're one of the people that are going to the live at the Livingston, uh, Southeastern Livingston Center here in uh, Livingston Parish, we'll have uh, we'll have it there for purchase. If you're interested in purchasing bottles, otherwise, just message us on uh, Facebook and we'll give you. Yeah, that and we're going to announce it for the first time today. If you're a Patreon member, you get five dollars off a bottle yes yes so, so, so 25 it'd be 20 there you go so uh, always trying to give you more perks uh out there when you when you're a patron member and support what we do here at bloody and gold and y'all check out on our social media the new tiers levels that we have for patreon members uh the different benefits that you get underneath that we try to you know if you're kind enough to support us uh, by subscribing through patreon we We'll like make to get back to you as much as we can. Amen. And we got transcripts available now, which right. is a big deal. And that's something that y'all have really been asking for. And, hey, we listen when y'all ask. And uh, so we do have transcripts available now that we'll be uploading of, of each of our new episodes going forward. And so you can read along as you listen along. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, next week, 
you'll be getting three bloody Angolas. Three bloody Angolas a week. And uh, they're all going to be entertaining and good. And we're looking forward to bringing that to y'all. So and until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. Your host of Bloody Angola. A podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. <laughs> <Love>. <laughs> I walk a straight line, shackled and chained. Oh, gruesome Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hill String Gang, Rango.